This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 28th of May 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, and today our regular guest Vincent McAvaney will join me to review the day's papers. Then our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck will be back with his weekly column. He's been down to the new Elizabeth Line in London. The stations are vast. To cope with the extra-long trains, the platforms stretch far into the distance, and they're deep. No fear of being knocked onto the rails by some suitcase-wielding tourist. It's wonderful, although Mr Brulé may not be delighted by the purple branding. More from Andrew Tuck later, and we'll take a trip to Art Basel in Hong Kong. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Up first, though, a look at what's making news today. Ukrainian forces may have to retreat from their last pocket in the Luhansk region to avoid being captured, a Ukrainian official said, as Russian troops press an advance in the east that's shifted the momentum of the three-month-old war. A withdrawal could bring Russian President Vladimir Putin closer to his goal of capturing eastern Ukraine's Luhansk and Donetsk regions in full. His troops have gained ground in the two areas collectively known as the Donbass, whilst blasting some towns to wastelands. The United States on Friday imposed sanctions on two Russian banks, a North Korean company and a person it accused of supporting North Korea's weapons of mass destruction programme, increasing pressure on Pyongyang over its renewed ballistic missile launches. The latest American move came a day after China and Russia vetoed a US-led push to impose more United Nations sanctions on North Korea over its ballistic missile launches, publicly splitting the UN Security Council for the first time since it started punishing Pyongyang in 2006. And falling ice boulders killed two climbers and hurt nine more on a peak in southwestern Switzerland on Friday, prompting a major rescue operation, police said. Seven rescue helicopters scrambled to the site, evacuating others of the 17 climbers who were at the scene in various groups. And that's your Monocle 24 News. And now joining me for a look at today's papers is Vincent McAvenny, who's a reporter and a Monocle 24 regular, uh, as well as being a UK politics commentator. Good morning to you, Vinny. Good morning. Now, I'm, I'm talking of you as a, as a regular voice, but in fact, you're a presenter here now too sometimes, aren't you? Oh, I mean, I've got one show under my belt, but yeah, two more <laughs> coming up this week for the Jubilee uh, Bank Holiday weekend. I'll be stepping into that chair again. So yeah, yeah it's And in nice. fact, stepping in because I won't be here. I'll be at uh, Hay, which has just kicked off this weekend. That's, of course, the Hay Literature. Uh, Festival uh, and a fabulous lineup. Um, one of the things I'm particularly interested in doing is um, the poet Raymond Antrobus next Thursday at 7 pm, uh, and that date and time is relevant because there's one other person on next Thursday at 7 pm. It's <laughs> Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Raymond and I aren't expecting a great audience. <laughs> Um, but I think it's, it's all going to be fun. Now, uh, with your UK politics commentator hat on, yep. my goodness, how much there is to talk about on what's what happened here. What a week in politics. Bring us up to speed, Vinny. 
Well, it started on Monday with the leaking of a photograph from inside number 10 Downing Street at a leaving party for a man called Lee Kane, who was in the uh, press and communications office in Downing Street. Uh, and in it, we saw the Prime Minister standing, giving a toast. There were about nine other people in the room and there were a significant number of bottles of wine opened, a bottle of gin, food on the table. Uh, and we learned that someone at that event had been given a fine because that was deemed to be a party in breach of the rules but not the Prime Minister, sparking huge questions about the just-concluded Met investigation where the Prime Minister only received one fine for one of the 16 events that happened in Number 10 Downing Street. So that sort of kicked the week off, and then we discovered that we were getting the Sue Gray report, uh, but there had been a war of words. Downing Street tried to claim that there was a meeting with Sue Gray that could have influenced things, and that who knew who had organised this meeting? Was it Sue Gray? That was the suggestion they put out. No, lo and behold, they finally admitted uh, that it was them that asked for the meeting with Sue Gray and reportedly Boris Johnson asked for the report not to be published, saying, oh, all this is out in the open now, we don't need this. Uh, so really upholding the pillars of public life there, Boris Johnson, who had promised that report would be put out after it was sort of kiboshed by the Metropolitan Police, suddenly announcing their investigation into this whole saga back in February. So lo and behold, the report is handed into Downing Street and we do get it on Wednesday. And Boris Johnson decides to go on a bit of a self-flagellation tour to try and drain the poison out in one go. He goes to PMQs, he does a ministerial statement, he does a full press conference, he goes to a meeting with his own backbenchers, and he talks about uh, being humbled by the report, apologising unreservedly for it, because it said that there was a culture led by the leadership in Downing Street which was flouting the rules, and there are certain bits of colour in this report which I think will come back and haunt this Prime Minister and this government the fact that people were so drunk that they were sick in Downing Street, the fact they were so drunk they were fighting in Downing Street, that they spilled wine over the fittings in Downing Street. But I think there's one detail which I think really jars with the British public, and I think this is very indicative, perhaps, of this culture that was created, and I think it's going to really tar Boris Johnson because I think a lot of people will be able to imagine it. Staff in Downing Street, the culture was so bad that they, on a number of occasions, were abusive and disrespectful to members of the cleaning staff and members of the security staff who raised objections to what was going on. They were seen as the little people, people that they could, you know, just simply tell to sod off effectively because they were saying, well, hold on, you created these rules, you've got to obey them, when there was reports that they were doing things like karaoke when you couldn't even sing at a person's funeral there was choirs who weren't able to sing for two years this has been such a damning episode for the prime minister that i think any idea that he might bring a snap election this year 2023 i think that's out the window now i think he's going to want it as far away from this report as possible in 2024 um but what about his backbenchers who are supporting him? Because surely they can see how badly this is playing with the country. I mean, I don't know any person, Conservative supporter or not, who isn't disgusted by this. Uh, and the fact is, the longer they support him, the, the more they're all uh, complicit. Yeah, a snap poll on Wednesday when the report came out said 60% of people thought that the Prime Minister should resign, including a quarter of those who voted for him in 2019. We have had a handful of Conservative MPs putting in, again, letters of no confidence, if a certain number of those are reached, then that does trigger a leadership race. And we have had a sort of very, the most junior ministerial rank, a PPS to Priti Patel, resign over this yesterday, Paul Holmes. But the question really is now, 
the polling that Tory MPs will be poring over is what's going to happen at the next election. If it was held tomorrow, it looks like they would lose the vast majority of their majority they've got. They've got a majority around 90 seats. A large number of those come from the so-called red wall seats that they won in the 2019 election off of Labour and the heartlands, former heartlands of the Labour Party. A lot of that potentially down to Brexit and a lot of people put off by the behaviour that's gone on here. So a lot of Tory MPs will be crunching the numbers looking at this, also worried about the persistent rumours now that the left parties, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party might be striking some kind of election alliance to try and just get rid of the Conservative Party. But the thing is, there is not a clear stalking horse at the moment. And I think that is why he's remaining in position mm. for now. It did look for the time like Rishi Sunak was that person, but he is now very damaged because he himself got a fine for one of these parties. There's also the matter of his own wife's tax status being non-dom, uh, the fact that he just seems to have no political antenna on top of building uh, what seems to be a, a multi-million pound sort of swimming pool sports complex at his own constituency home. Last week, it was reported that he paid out of his own pocket to take a private helicopter to a Conservative fundraising event in Wales. He paid around £10,000 to do that from a heliport in London. It just doesn't seem like this is someone who's going to win over people struggling with a cost-of-living crisis. Mm. And then you've got the other contenders. I think Liz Truss, still the Foreign Secretary, very much in the ring, and Jeremy Hunt, the former Health Secretary who ran against Boris Johnson last time, seems to be making signals that he's going to run. But the fact is, all of those people know the person that wields the knife normally isn't the one that wears the crown. Yeah. Uh, and so there are none of them yet feeling in a position like they can make a run for it and, and try and get him. Uh, but finally, Johnson seems to be changing the rules to lessen the impact on himself. We are, you know, going from Wednesday talking about his apologies and being humbled by the Partygate affair. It now seems that the Prime Minister is trying to change the rules on the ministerial code when it comes to breaching that code and having to resign in what Labour are calling uh, the debasement of the principles of public life. Now, this published guideline uh, is is a watered-down version of what we got. Uh, it would require things like an apology and perhaps a docking of ministerial pay, remedial action, uh, but it wouldn't require the removal unless there had been the, uh, the lying to Parliament. Uh, and this is something that is a little bit tricky. The Prime Minister is actually currently being, being investigated now that the Stugray report by the Standards Committee in Parliament potentially lying to Parliament, which is a resignation matter for himself. So it's curious the timing of this uh, move to water down because he very clearly said last November when the details of these parties first emerged that there were no parties that broke the rules that he was aware of. Well, we know that that wasn't the case. The photographs published in the report, the one that was leaked, the one that he got the fine for, there were definitely parties there. He knew that they were going on and so he must have lied to Parliament. And now he's trying to change the rules so he doesn't carry the can. Quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, Vincent, let's get far away from all of this and go on a lovely train ride with Andrew Tuck. In January 1863, Londoners descended into subterranean London at Farringdon Station and waited as the world's first ever underground train pulled into view. The Metropolitan Railway train, hauled along by a steam engine, its carriages kept bright by gaslights, then whisked people through newly dug tunnels to Paddington Station, stopping at six places along the way. It was an immediate success, carrying some 38,000 excited Victorians on the first day alone. People who were delighted that they could now dodge the chaotic traffic, pooping horses and crowds milling and jostling up above them. 
This week, I made the very same journey on the just-opened Elizabeth Line, a new high-speed commuter service that crosses under the city from east to west and links with railway networks on both sides of the capital. It's a development that will suddenly make both the commercial and the entertainment hearts of London just a short hop away for hundreds of thousands of more people and in reverse, turn places that once seemed a bit off the map firmly on it. It's the jolt the capital needs. By my reckoning, it took just seven minutes to cross under the city on my trip. A key station at Bond Street is yet to open, so we didn't stop here, shaving some time off what the final journey time will actually be. The stations are vast. To cope with the extra-long trains, the platforms stretch far into the distance, and they're deep, no fear of being knocked onto the rails by some suitcase-wielding tourist. It's wonderful, although Mr. Brule may not be delighted by the purple branding. The project has been far from seamless. Overruns, overspends, a pandemic that questioned its very purpose. Critics have said that the money should have been spent in the regions, that there is none of the glamour of the 1930s stations, that Uber, e-scooters and bicycles are actually the future of modern mobility. But in Britain, anything that sounds like a giant engineering leap forward, especially one that expands rail networks to deliver trains at high speeds or develops airline capacity, will always be muddied with politics and dollops of outrage. But anyway, for today, we have the Elizabeth Line. Well, part of it. It will take another year for it to be fully functioning. And judging by the buzz it's generated, it's going to be a success. My journey was on Thursday, two days after its opening, and the Instagrammers had by now mostly gone, and already it was just busy with people commuting to work, nonchalantly reading presentations, listening to their music. Just as it did for those men and women who took the first underground train back in 1863, the Elizabeth Line is going to let Londoners see their city anew. Not just how they traverse it and mentally map it, but also sense what it's capable of achieving, the quality of life that it can deliver, the innovation that it can nurture. But there's another important train journey coming this week, the Eurostar to Paris. The Monocle Quality of Life conference starts with the opening reception on Thursday and then a full day of debate, plus a night of dining and dancing, on Friday. It's an amazing lineup of speakers and guests who are coming from every corner of the globe. I get to host panels on the power of photography, the Olympic legacy, and also city making. And this week I've been catching up with the speakers in advance and am properly excited about what's ahead. If you want to get there, well, you have to head to monocle.com conference and get your ticket. And I am planning on being on that dance floor. On Monday night, I had an operation on my knee. After months of being prodded, told I was probably just getting old, I went to see a specialist two weeks ago. The next day, he sent me for an MRI, which revealed a torn meniscus. The day after that, I was given a date for my operation, and so far, so good. I get to wear a sort of compression bandage that resembles a saggy stocking, have a shaved kneecap, and some stitches to garner at least a little bit of sympathy. And as a parting gift, they gave me a film of my operation on a memory stick. Quite fun to watch with a glass of Chardonnay, said the nurse. Well, at least that's tonight's entertainment sorted. 
Thank you very much to Andrew Tuck there. You're listening to Monocle uh, on Saturday on Monocle 24. I'm with Vincent McAvinney. And uh, Vincent, we turn our, our uh, eyes to Texas and this latest school shooting and shocking revelations about the police. An incredibly heated press conference yesterday with the head of public safety in the Texas police force where he admitted that there was a 40-minute gap in the police arriving at the scene of the shooting in the Evalde uh, Elementary School and them actually getting into the room where the shooter had barricaded himself in, despite the fact that there were 19 officers present, as it's America, they were all armed, but they seemingly thought that it had gone from an active shooter to a barricaded situation where they needed tactical support, uh, but they're being accused of uh, cowardice, of negligence in their job, and also of covering up the timeline of events. Earlier in the week, we were given a very different timeline. Uh, And the fact is that there were multiple calls from inside the elementary school, from children and pupils hiding, telling them that there was still an active shooter situation uh, and to come in and help them. Uh, And so this really does come at a time um, when... We're a decade on from Sandy Hook, and it was famously said after that, if America is willing to let their kids die, elementary school children, these are children five, six, seven years old, at the hands of these guns and do nothing, then they never will. Uh, And it does seem clear that, again, that is the situation. The NRA, National Rifle Association, had a convention for its 150th anniversary just 300 miles away in Houston yesterday. There were huge protests outside, uh, including people turning up from previous school shootings. Uh, David Hogg, who was in the Florida school shooting, who's now an activist on gun control. Uh, But in that conference was one Donald Trump speaking ahead of of see him entering potentially the US election cycle next year, uh, again saying that guns are the right thing to do, that people should arm themselves. Uh, and there seems to be no sort of repentance or thought on that side. You've had the likes of Senator Ted Cruz from Texas this week saying it's all about the fences and the doors uh, and the same. Not There was a great uh, cut together of in 24 hours after the shooting, 20, I think it was, no, was it? It was, there was... It was, I think it was, that, it was 55, 55, it wasn't 20 something, it was 55 different ideas put out for how to stop shootings, including um, having, as I said, high offences, people going back to church, stopping video games, people having better diets, all sorts of nonsense when really at the heart of this is gun control. Yeah. Uh, and you do have to wonder, you know, uh, we're both journalists uh, and as journalists, you see some pretty horrible things sometimes, some unfortunate things that do haunt you, that scare you, that make you go home uh, and feel glad for what you've got and who you've got in your life. Um, and the one thing as a as a journalist I never really have to factor in the horror of seeing is a mass shooting. Um, there is, you know, very little gun crime in the United Kingdom Uh the same for most of the world. When you look at America, it is the worst form of American exceptionalism. There has only been one mass shooting in a school in in Britain. I remember it as a child, 1996 in Dunblane. Um, a number of school children in Scotland were killed. And within a year, there was full gun control in the United Kingdom. Uh, the same thing happened as this piece in uh, the New York Times shows in other countries after Christchurch in New Zealand. There was a buyback program. There was a ban on automatic uh, on automatic assault weapons. Same thing in Australia in, in the 90s when there was a big shooting there. Uh, and gun crime in all these countries has gone down significantly. But America just will not seem to listen on this point from anyone else's experience. It's quite, quite extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the shooter himself goes and buys two assault weapons on 
his 18th birthday. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, who who doesn't check that? It's and, very odd. You know, I remember going... I remember a summer where I worked in California for when I was 20, I was at university. And, you know, to be even a 20-year-old in the United States at that time, you can't buy beer can't go into a bar there were restaurants that wouldn't let me ha- eat because th- because they were like well we want to serve and we're worried that we'll forget so something you've got to be over 25 couldn't rent a hire car couldn't rent hotel rooms in some places i mean the restrictions on being an 18 year old uh, in the united states are immense apart from you can walk in on your birthday and buy war grade weaponry and some of the detail that's coming out as well about what happened in the school there's a little girl who smeared herself with the blood of a dead friend and played dead so that she would be safe. Uh, and there's an interesting piece here by Amanda Tobb in the, um, in the New York Times talking uh, about the fact that she went in to collect her toddler, two-year-old, from daycare and discovered that they were doing active shooter drills. She also had an experience where her husband, who was a, a teacher, called her from a closet because there was a report of an active shooter on campus. I mean... The fact that they just think that this is normal, it just, it you know, it defies belief. And in, one sad point about all this is that gun sales are going up in part because of fear of the next general election. The fact that it could descend into the kind of chaos that we saw across the country on January the 6th is scaring people and more guns are getting out there. Vinny, let's remind ourselves that there is still grace and beauty in the world. Mm-hmm. We turn our attention to Art Basel Hong Kong. The event, which first came to the city in 2013, has gone on to become a fixture in the art calendar and it'll be highlighting the work of some of the finest artists and galleries in the region this weekend. Well, to find out more about the 2022 event, Monocle's bureau chief in the city, James Chambers, spoke to the gallerist Arthur de Velpin and asked him first how he'll be spending the week. Mainly, I think, of course, visiting the fair, uh, I will go to different openings. I think that this moment of Hong Kong is always something we all expect when we are in the art world. We can see, and this is what I love, right? We can see the people changing. We can see that even the way people dress, that there's much more events. I think art brings something into people that actually change them also in the way they look and in the way they are and the discussions that they bring, how they, which artists that they you know, were surprised of. It's not just the events. It's not just the paintings that you're going to see, but this whole ecosystem, it's the whole, the people starts to vibrate at the music of art. And, and that is really exciting. Traditionally, Art Basel week is a time of countless dinners and parties and openings and events. What's this year going to be like? Well, I think it's still very exciting. I think that a lot of galleries are still going to be here presenting amazing shows. I can see that there is a, the level of curation within the art fair have really gone up. And I think that this is a, a very good actually lesson or learning from the whole COVID, the whole pandemic. And from what I learned, when Art Basel turned digital, they realized that by going digital, people could not browse online and just go from one gallery to the other. So they had to find thematics and they had to find themes to kind of like help people in the direction into where they would browse. Eventually, I think that that thematic idea, that idea of curation, of bringing more meaning, I think, into every booth and every uh, presentation is exciting. And I never thought, you know, that less would be less. I think less is more. That's a really big philosophy of mine. So I definitely think that 
not having the whole public and the international community yet in Hong Kong will certainly bring other aspects, maybe more intimacy and a, and a better way to, to share and also discover new artists. You opened the gallery in 2019, you describe yourself as new, but you know, since then there have been a number of other galleries popping up and starting in Hong Kong. And then we have, you mentioned the infrastructure, we have M Plus, which has finally opened. Does it feel like there's a bit of a buzz around the, the art scene in Hong Kong? What I'm seeing today, and this is what I love about Hong Kong, is the combination of this market that is great, that is growing, and the possibility of, of selling art in a, in a great way, and, and Hong Kong to be a platform for Asia-Pacific. But not only that, it's the rise of museum infrastructures an ecosystem, people, you know, that are trained within the art world. I mean, you look at logistics here for anyone that knows a bit about Hong Kong and, and, and did exhibitions, we have the, amongst the best logisticians in the world. So professionals around the art and the infrastructure around is really shaking up and that's really exciting. So we feel that we can welcome more and more those amazing international artists that will make Hong Kong one of those amazing cities, not just from a market point of view, but also in terms of showing up the new artists of the 21st century. What are Asian collectors looking for right now? What's hot? I think the contemporary art market now is, is, is definitely booming. And I would, you know, we, we can see all the, of course, African artists. The rise into new diversity is now more and more hot. I would actually, for me, because in my situation, I look at a very long term, I would complement that with the idea that when we choose artists and what's hot, we should always look at, will they have their place in a museum in 20 years from now? I think that for me, my dimension comes in here. I think the artist needs to put themselves into a long journey where museums accompany them, where there is a work where you can see different exhibitions of the same artists. I think that is really important. As Asia and travel are starting to open up in this part of the world. And fingers crossed here in Hong Kong, we'll perhaps have some good news in the summer. Where do you plan to spend the second half of the art calendar this year? Well, I think it's gonna be important to travel a bit, to go international. I think that for us, we want to put out also a strong Hong Kong by going international and doing shows around the world. I think that definitely a challenge that that will be uh, coming next. And of course, I think going contemporary. So bringing artists that we can show in this part of the world that resonates already with the Western world. I think that continuing being that bridge will definitely be uh, one of the challenges for the coming months. But I can tell you, like, please keep updated because it's going to be very exciting. It's going to be very exciting. Arthur de Villepin speaking to James Chambers there in Hong Kong for about Art Puzzle Hong Kong, which is on from this weekend. Well, let's go from visual art to the movies. Top Gun and is Tom Cruise the last movie star, Vinny? Yeah, he is potentially uh, a breed on the verge of extinction. This is a really good piece in the New York Times about, if you didn't know, despite all the advertising and a proper old-school push, you know, hiring out, um, I think an aircraft carrier it was for the premiere, you know, having a fly pass, a royal premiere, all of that. Top Gun Maverick, the sequel to Top Gun, one of the biggest Hollywood blockbusters of all time, is out this weekend after 36 years. It's been in the can for two years because of the pandemic. The studio unwilling to... Uh, renege on their investments and they've decided to wait and it's a proper 
old school film. They didn't use CGI. All of the actors were actually in proper planes themselves. Tom Cruise can fly his own fighter jet. They were, you know, this is a real old school movie. It is not a Marvel CGI spectacular. Uh, and it's a real test for two things the blockbuster and the future of cinema, but also Tom Cruise. So on the future of cinema, you know, you are getting now most movie watching going on on streaming services. Pretty much every, even, you know, the likes of Steven Spielberg, people that said that they were holding out, that it was all about keeping cinemas alive. They are all on Netflix or Disney Plus or Apple TV. They're all striking those deals. And you're getting most kind of smaller, you know, thoughtful films on there that simply now there is potentially no path for in the cinema for that universal experience. But we've seen successively that people are willing to go back to the cinemas because you've had things like the last Spider-Man movie at Christmas making over a billion dollars around the world, but some massively underperforming ones like the last James Bond film. So this uh, Top Gun Maverick, now that most places are restricted, have lifted their restrictions on COVID, is really being seen as a hope for cinemas uh, to try and drive people back in. But it also... It's a bit of a test for Tom Cruise, who they point out here, they, they compare him to his peers of the day, the likes of Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, the likes of Sylvester Stallone as the action stars, where they it was just their name that drew people in. It didn't, you know, you didn't necessarily need to know the plot. It was, oh, this person's got a new movie, so we'll go and see it. And they point out that, you know, Tom Cruise really, you know, he doesn't do a streaming service. He doesn't do TV. He doesn't do kind of adverts for things. He is just about making these big tentpole movies. And whether or not that's something that you know can be done they talk about here even today's stars like your Zendaya's your Ryan Reynolds your Dwayne Johnson's you know they do make movies but they also make tv shows and they make their own tequila and they have their own makeup line and you know the Kardashianization of of, of celebrity essentially uh, whereas Tom Cruise is just obsessed with movies and this Top Gun Maverick will be a test as to whether that still works whether you can still be a sort of classic movie star will you go and see it definitely because because my dad had this test, or it, it has this test, whenever he buys a new TV, he will always put on Top Gun to test it because it's got big sound and great picture. So it was a VHS cassette would go in every time we bought a TV. Then it was a DVD. Now it's downloaded. Uh, so, I, you know, it is, for all its faults, it is a great film. Uh, and I can't actually wait to see the sequel to see. And the reviews are pretty across the board praising of it. So it'll be interesting to be back it's just nice at the moment to see stuff in the cinema and have a collective experience. Absolutely. Vinny, thank you for joining this collective experience. <laughs> it's been lovely to have uh, Vincent McAvinney in the studio with me. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and of course to you, the listeners. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns the same time next week.